puffs up or makes us proud and, and we can get proud if we think we're, we're, we're better or know more about the Bible than other people. You know, I went to Bible college. I know this. I know that. I have a master's degree. I won the, the Bible trivia game the other night. I'm, I'm a better Christian than, than these other people. But uh, that really is not the goal of the Christian life. It's good to know what the Bible says, but of course we need to, to not just know it or hear it or read it, but also to live out what it says. So my purpose this morning isn't just to talk about how Psalm 110 is the New Testament's most quoted psalm. What I want to do is talk about why it's quoted so often in the New Testament. Why was Psalm 110 so important to the writers of the New Testament? So that's the question I want us to think about. Why is Psalm 110 the New Testament's most quoted psalm? So let's get into the psalm. Really what I want to focus on this morning in Psalm 110 is the two statements made by the Lord in verses 1 and 4. The Lord says to my Lord. That's how the psalm begins. And any time in the Old Testament there are English translations, we have the Lord, the word Lord in capital letters. That tells us that in the Hebrew, it's the name of God, the personal name that he revealed to, to Moses and the nation of Israel, Yahweh. And so Yahweh says to my Lord in the Hebrew, it's Adonai. Yahweh says to my Adonai. And he says two things, one in verse 1 and then another thing in verse 4. So in verse 1, Yahweh says, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies, your footstool. And then in verse 4, Yahweh says, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, something we should figure out is, who is Yahweh speaking to here? Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Who is he speaking to? Well, in this series on the Psalms, I've talked about how there are different types of Psalms. There are Psalms of praise, Psalms of thanksgiving, Psalms of trust, Psalms of lament, Psalms of wisdom. There are also royal Psalms, Psalms that have to do with a king, specifically the king of Israel. And if you look at the top in your Bible, of Psalm 110. There's a title here, A Psalm of David. So that means that David is its author. So putting that all together, the person that God or Yahweh is speaking to is a king. You can get that from the whole psalm. It's speaking about a king. Yahweh is speaking to a king. And this king is also a descendant of David. Uh, it goes back to that promise that God gave to uh, David. I believe it's in 2 Samuel chapter 7. That covenant, we call it the Davidic covenant, uh, where he promised that David would have a lasting kingdom. There would always be someone to sit on the throne of David. So Yahweh is speaking to a king. 
someone in the line of, of David. And we can get that from, as well, the New Testament. The New Testament really, as I said, quotes this, this psalm several times, and we put all that together, comparing Scripture with Scripture. That's what we realize, that this is speaking about a king. God is speaking to a king, and this king is in the line of David, a descendant of David. So let's look at three places where, in the New Testament, this psalm is quoted. So Jesus himself quotes Psalm 110, verse 1. Uh, that quote is found in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Uh, they all talk about or share with us the same incident where Jesus quotes this verse. So I'm going to go to uh, Matthew chapter 22 and start to read at verse 41. Matthew 22, verse 41. Now, the Pharisees and others were, if you've read the Gospels before, they were constantly asking Jesus questions to try and trip him up, uh, to get him into trouble. You even see that in this chapter. Uh, he's been asked the question about should we pay taxes to Caesar uh, the Sadducees asked him the question about well if a man uh, gets married and his wife dies and he remarries and she dies and this goes on several times who's, who will be his wife in heaven so asking him these kinds of questions to, to uh, trip him up uh, so Jesus turns the tables here and he asks them a question verse 41 Matthew 22 now while the Pharisees were gathered together Jesus asked them a question saying what do you think about the Christ whose son is he they said to him the son of David he said to them how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? No one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare ask him any more questions. So it's interesting that... Uh, Jesus accepts that, that David is the author of Psalm 110. I mentioned a couple of weeks ago uh, that uh, today not everyone accepts that these titles really are a part of the original Psalms, and there are different views on that. But at least for this Psalm, Psalm 110, Jesus accepts that David is the author. And also... Jesus says that what David wrote is God's word. He says that David was speaking in the spirit. Now, the Pharisees believe correctly that Psalm 110 is about the Christ. In other words, the Messiah, uh, the great king to come in the line of David. And, and Jesus asks them, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? Verse 42. And the Pharisees answer that, uh, that the Christ is the son of who? Son of David, the author of the psalm. But Jesus has a second question for them. If, if then David calls him Lord, his son Lord, how is he his son? 
And the Pharisees are, are stumped by this, this question. In their minds, David would be greater than any of his descendants. So why does David call this son of his, his Lord, my Adonai? Why does he say that? And they can't give Jesus an answer to that question. It seems as if, well, Jesus is saying that the son is greater than David. The Christ, the Messiah, is greater than David. And so what Jesus says here is that the Christ will be more than just the son of David. Now, Jesus doesn't come right out and say it here, but what he's getting at, and this is the message of the Gospel of Matthew, what he's saying really is that the Christ is both the son of David and the son of God. And so in that way, the son of David is greater than David himself because Jesus is not only, or the Christ, he doesn't claim here at this in this instance, that he is the Christ, though Matthew's gospel does present that to us. But what he's saying is that the Christ will be greater than David. Uh, the Apostle Paul, in his uh, opening to his letter of uh, letter to the Romans, chapter one, verses three and four, uh, he writes concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. So here Paul says that, that, that Jesus, the Christ, our Lord, he descended from David, he's a son of David, physically speaking, but he's also the Son of God. And he says that was declared by his resurrection from the dead. So both the son of David and the son of God. This king who would come, this king foretold in Psalm 110, not just a son of David, but something that people just didn't expect or foresee, the Pharisees didn't, that he would also be the son of God. So Jesus quotes Psalm 110. Again, think about why, why this psalm is so quoted in the New Testament. Uh, in Acts chapter 2, the apostle Peter also quotes Psalm 110, verse 1. We could go back to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. We're going to begin at verse 22. I'm going to read a few verses here just to give us the context. Acts 2.22. Now, Peter is preaching a sermon. And he's preaching this sermon in Jerusalem. And this would have taken place only about 50 days after the crucifixion of Jesus. So that's important to keep in mind. In Jerusalem, after the death of Jesus. And so picking it up in verse 22, Peter says, Men of Israel, 
Hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. So, so they knew about Jesus of Nazareth. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So he's speaking about the people of Israel, us, people of Jerusalem in general. Of course, the Romans were involved in that as well. This was all the plan of God. This was not a surprise to God. But at the same time, those who were involved in the death of Jesus were responsible for their actions, for their sin. In one way, it was the worst thing that ever happened, but in another sense, it was the best thing that ever happened. Christ died for us according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Verse 24, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him. Now here he quotes another psalm, a different psalm, Psalm 16. I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. And Peter says in verse 29, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, so he's saying that, you know, I don't know if David understood all that he was writing here, but Peter says he was a prophet in Psalm 16, as he was in Psalm 110. And knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would never see one of his set, that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, it mentioned that earlier, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. So the Gospel of Luke, the sequel to the book of Acts, sorry. Acts is the sequel to the Gospel of Luke. Talked about, of course, the resurrection, how Peter and the others were witnesses to the empty grave and to the appearances of Jesus after his death, after his resurrection. Verse 33, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing uh, for Here's finally the quote from Psalm 110. For David did not ascend into the heavens. So he's not talking about himself here. But he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. So David, he did not ascend into the heavens, but Jesus did. In the previous chapter, Acts chapter 1, we see that. And Peter says he's now at the right hand of God, which is a place of, place of honor. And so Peter clearly comes right up and says it, that Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, is the Christ. He's the one you were looking for. He's both Lord and Christ. 
And the tragic thing is that this one you crucified is the one you were waiting for. Jesus of Nazareth is both Lord and Christ, the one you crucified. So Peter quotes Psalm 110 to support uh, what he's saying about Jesus, that he's now at the right hand of the Father. He's been exalted after his death and resurrection. And then one other person who quotes Psalm 110 We don't know his name. We can't be sure who wrote the book of Hebrews, but the writer of Hebrews quotes Psalm 110. He quotes both verses 1 and 4. Chapter 1, verse 13, he's he's talking about how Jesus is greater than the angels. And so he quotes uh, verse 1. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? So the whole message of Hebrews is how Jesus is better or greater than uh, starting with uh, the angels and Moses and his covenant is a greater covenant. The new covenant is greater than the old covenant. As we'll see, his priesthood is greater than that old covenant priesthood. And so we're going to go over to chapter 7. And... The writer of Hebrews spends a long time talking about verse 4 of Psalm 110. Psalm 110 verse 4 says, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now I was going to read quite a few verses, but maybe I won't read all the verses I had planned to read. But in chapter 7 verses 1 through 25, uh, he talks about... Uh, Melchizedek. Maybe I'll just read verses 1 through 3 of Hebrews chapter 7. He says, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham, returning from the slaughter of the kings, and blessed him. So this goes back to uh, Genesis chapter 14 and the life of Abraham. And uh, Melchizedek is kind of a mysterious figure in the book of Genesis. Uh, the writer here talks about that. Verse 2, And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and he is also a king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning or uh, of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. So, The writer here points out that Melchizedek, this priest who was also a king, he, in a sense, didn't have a father or mother. No genealogy of his is given in the book of Genesis. It's not that he just appeared out of nowhere. It's that there was no record of his his parents, where he came from. Uh, So it's as if he just appeared out of nowhere without a beginning and and without an end. We don't read about his his death. And so in that sense, he sort of continues on forever as a priest. We don't read about his birth. We don't read about his death. In in that way, he, he resembles Christ. As Psalm 110 says, this king will be a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And so the point here is that Jesus is the one to fulfill this, uh, that his priesthood is better than the priesthood that we find in the Old Testament. Uh, 
These priests were uh, from the tribe of Levi. Jesus was from the tribe of Judah. He was uh, not a descendant of Aaron, but he was a descendant of David. And if you read the Old Testament, the kings really couldn't do the priestly duties. There's that incident with King Uzziah where he tried to, or he did, uh, offer incense upon the altar, and God struck him with leprosy. The king was not to be a priest. But here, Melchizedek was both a priest and king, and what the writer of Hebrews here says, that Jesus, as well, after the order of Melchizedek, was both, or is both, a priest and a king. And so Jesus, uh, the writers here is saying that Jesus has been declared by God to be a priesthood after a different order, not the order of Moses, but, or sorry, Aaron, but the order of Melchizedek. It's a lengthy argument or reasoning here, uh, but what one thing he gets at is that Jesus is a priest forever. Uh, look at the end of, near the end of chapter 7. Let's go down to uh, verse 23. Hebrews seven twenty-three. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he, Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. And so these Old Testament priests, they were, they were living, they were dying, they were offering sacrifices over and over again. Uh, but these sacrifices, as the book of Hebrews tells us, really couldn't atone or pay for people's sins. They were really pointing forward to a greater sacrifice, the ultimate sacrifice. The writer of Hebrews calls it a once-for-all sacrifice. And that was the sacrifice of Christ offering his own blood uh, for our sins, for the forgiveness, the atonement of our sins. And so uh, Jesus holds this priesthood permanently. You are a priest forever, Psalm 110 verse 4 says which is quoted here in Hebrews. For this reason, he's able to save to the uttermost, save completely those who draw near to God through him. You know, nothing, if we put our faith in Jesus Christ, we turn from our sin and acknowledge our sinfulness and put our faith in him, believing that he is both the son of David and the son of God, that he's died for our sins and risen from the grave, uh, that there's nothing that really will, will void our salvation. He will save us to the uttermost. You know, it's not like a, a warranty that can become void if we don't follow all of the, the fine print. You know, with Jesus, forever is forever. Some of those lifetime warranties, if you look at the fine print, they're really not for your lifetime. There's, there's a limit. But with Jesus, he saves us to the uttermost. And what the writer here, in quoting Psalm 110 verse 4, uh, one of his points is that Jesus is both a king and a priest. He is our Lord. He is our king. Uh, we follow him. But he's also a priest who served us, who gave his life for us. Not only the priest, but the offering, the sacrifice itself. He gave up his life for us. And that's something we, we've, I'm sure, heard over and over again. But we need to really pause to think about really 
the great significance in that, that the one who is the son of God, the king, the Christ, allowed himself to be crucified so that he could atone for our sins through the shedding of his blood. Just let that sink in, in your hearts and your minds. And now he's seated at the Father's right hand, not only a position of honor, but in being seated, we could, we could see that his, his work is, is now completed. It's finished. Uh, it's a once-for-all sacrifice. Unlike the priests of the Old Covenant, it's not something that has to be repeated over and over again, but it was a once-for-all sacrifice. And there is, there is peace in that, in knowing that Jesus has paid completely the price of our salvation. Finally, and probably you have figured out the answer to the question we started with, why is Psalm 110 the New Testament's most quoted psalm? Well, it's the most quoted psalm in the New Testament because it's about Jesus. The psalm also includes God's promise that the king's enemies will become his footstool, they'll be defeated. Uh, the New Testament Writers tell us that this will happen when Jesus returns. Uh, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 11 through 13. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. So not only is this uh, psalm quoted, but it's, it's alluded to over and over. Anytime you read about uh, Christ being at the right hand of the Father or his enemies being made his footstool, it's, it's alluding to this psalm. And we're waiting for that day after the ascension of Jesus, his exaltation. Uh, we're, we're awaiting his return, his victory. And uh, the psalm talks about the victory of, of Christ. And we really didn't get into all of that. As I said, we were focusing on those two statements of the Lord. Uh, but it also talks about how we are his willing uh, people following him, and he is uh, leading us in victory. We can think about, finally, the, the book of Hebrews, which is where we ended up. And, and really why Hebrews was written and, and why the writer spends so much time talking about uh, how Jesus is better. For example, he has a better priesthood. You know, why does he do it? What's the purpose? Well, we aren't certain who the recipients were. Uh, it's called Hebrews because it's likely that the recipients were, were Jewish Christians. It's also possible that they lived in Rome. And based on the book's contents, it appears that the author's purpose was to encourage his readers to persevere in the faith. Chapter 10, verse 23, he writes, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. So they were tempted to walk away. You know, some people do walk away from the Christian faith, sadly. Uh, maybe you can, you can think of a friend who did that. It's a tragic thing. But we are tempted sometimes to, to give up. And Jesus, he cautioned people to, to count the cost before making the decision to follow him. And he didn't try to trick people into making a quick decision that they'd later regret. 
He didn't say, just follow me and all your problems will disappear. Instead, he said, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. So the word bear his own cross tells us that the Christian life won't always be easy. It might actually create some problems that we didn't have before. And so Jesus says, make sure you know what you're getting into. So for the original readers of Hebrews, uh, there was... For many of them, I'm sure, a significant cost to uh, being a Christian. As I said, they were probably Jewish Christians, and accepting Jesus of Nazareth as the Christ could have resulted in in some of their friends abandoning them, uh, maybe their family disowning them, maybe uh, their parents disinheriting them, uh, and some of them perhaps are beginning to wonder, is it really worth it? Is it really worth it to follow Jesus? Maybe, maybe I should just go back to, you know, the old ways, you know, Judaism, the old covenant. Have you ever asked that question, is being a Christian worth it? And of course, I would answer yes, and the writer of Hebrews would answer yes, The profit far surpasses the cost. You know, sometimes we're faced with those sorts of decisions. You know, this time of year, Marsha and I always think, well, should we get an air conditioner for the upstairs level of our house? It really gets hot up there. We have an air pump, so we have air conditioning on the middle level. It's really cool down there. Marsha slept uh, on that level on the couch a couple of times recently because it was so much nicer down there than it was in our bedroom. And uh, I don't know if it's making it hotter upstairs or just the contrast feels like it's so much hotter up there now. Uh, But is, is, is is the cost worth it? You know, it wasn't too bad this past week. Uh... The weather was a little cooler at night. Uh, So, you know, is it worth it to do that? We're faced with those sorts of decisions. Uh, In following Christ, I believe the profit far surpasses the cost. What we gain from it far surpasses uh, the sacrifices we might or the problems we might face. In Hebrews 13, 13 and 14, uh, we read, So Jesus also suffered outside the gate, speaking of his crucifixion, in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp. Speaking of you know, being rejected by some people, outside, uh, outside the camp. Thinking back to the days of Israel in the wilderness, outside the camp, and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. That would be the heavenly city. So the prophet far surpasses the cost. Uh, On one occasion, when many people were abandoning Jesus, he asked the 12 disciples, do you want to go away as well? John 6, 67. And what did Peter say? Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. The profit far surpasses the cost. The Apostle Paul writes, Whatever gain I had in my former life, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. To him, the profit far surpassed the cost. And finally, Jesus said, What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? The profit of following Jesus, of giving our lives to him, far surpasses the cost. Yes, being a Christian is worth it. The 
profit far surpasses the cost. We're following the one who is both the son of David and the son of God. The one who is the Christ, the Messiah. The one who gave his life up for us. Who shed his blood for the forgiveness of our sins. So that we could have forgiveness. Eternal, eternal life. Hope. Peace with God. All this and more. So yes... The prophet far surpasses the cost. Why would we turn away from Jesus? So I, I encourage you with, with those thoughts about who Jesus is, why this psalm was so important, what it says about him, his exaltation at the right hand of God coming again, and all that there is to be gained. There's some things to lose, perhaps, but all that there is to be gained in following Jesus.